Coming up today on The Courier Daily. In a crisis, you don't start with whose responsibility is what and whose expertise is what. You start with the tasks, the list of tasks, and you divvy up the tasks. You almost remove the job titles, the roles and responsibilities as they were. It's everybody around the table equally working out how on earth you're going to get this shit done. And later in the show, the state of paper greeting cards. The current situation is a bit of a catalyst for what was happening in the first place. So it's just accelerating everything. You know, if you think about working from home, if you think about the anxiety around travel and it's weirdly forcing everything to just happen a lot faster. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 13th of May and this is The Courier Daily. By now you know we've been calling, Zooming and checking in with small business owners all over the world to find opportunities amid the crisis. Today, we're talking leadership. Alice Driscoll is a leadership coach for founders, CEOs, and investors at a company called Horizon 37. In recent weeks during lockdown, Alice and her colleagues have caught up with and studied the leadership styles of dozens of CEOs of growing scale-up companies. She's nailed down some pretty interesting insights into which behaviors, attitudes, and actions are proving the most effective during the crisis. I caught up with Alice just a bit earlier today to hear the Cliff Notes version. Here she is. We decided to take the opportunity to kind of reach back out to our existing customers and to new customers and just make sure that we were there and that we were offering coaching support during kind of this quite stressful, challenging time. So what that meant is, is that we reconnected with quite a lot of previous clients, as well as carrying on with our existing clients. And we ended up as a team. So there's um, three of us in the in the coaching team day to day at Horizon 37. We ended up kind of coaching sort of over 35 CEOs, founders of scale-ups predominantly. What we kind of learned in that process of providing support for them was it gave us real insight into what are the key challenges that scale-up leaders are facing right now? Like what are the common themes? What are the things that they're finding that are working? What are the things that they've tried and that really didn't work? And we just realized that actually, you know, seven weeks in, we were sitting on a bit of a gold mine of we sort of unintentionally conducted a really interesting piece of research. So it wasn't sort of our starting plan. The starting plan was how can we be available? How can we help our community? How can we just be there for people? It just occurred to us as we were talking to each other and and talking about what we were hearing that actually there was a lot of gold here that would be really useful to share more widely. So my colleague Katie wrote a summary of the insights which is available on our LinkedIn page. We just posted that this morning actually and that's kind of how the whole thing came about. And now you've divided these insights into mindset, habits, interactions, and decision-making. You know, you divide it into pre-crisis and post-crisis. So maybe we'll kick it off with the mindset. How are the mindset of scale-up CEOs, how has that changed by the crisis? These kind of four categories are the way that we've um, summarized the learnings in the kind of full report. And then I've just framed it as pre-crisis and post-crisis for the purpose of like this conversation, because I think that's quite an interesting way to kind of understand the shift that's happening for people. So starting with mindset. So obviously, there's an awful lot of unintentional mindset shifts that have happened. Panic, worry, insomnia, there's all sorts of things going on. But I think one of the things that we found really interesting is that when you think about entrepreneurialism and and you talk about startups in particular people talk very very passionately about entrepreneurs needing to be sort of irrationally optimistic 
and that you have to have this like unwavering belief in your business and your product that to most other people might seem completely mad and completely far-fetched. And we really celebrate this. And although that is absolutely, I think, an accepted cornerstone of success, what's really interesting in crisis, which we absolutely would determine what we're going through right now as a crisis, is that you do really need to temper that optimism with what we would call realism. And the best way to do that is to make sure that you are surrounding yourself with advisors, that if you're a naturally optimistic person, that you might consider those people to be a bit pessimistic, but you've got to take whatever your natural latent position is and make sure that you have something and someone that can give you a counter position. Is that just because in a time of crisis, if I'm overly optimistic, I might miss the torpedo coming towards me or something like that, or like the alien spaceship about to blow me up? Yeah, it's exactly that. So I think there's a time for realism and for going, actually, this is tough. This isn't inevitably going to succeed. Sometimes the market wins. In fact, usually the market wins, right? So it's about acknowledging the reality of the challenges so that you can make really smart decisions. And this is not normal. This is not business as usual. Optimism isn't enough. Let's talk about habits. What kind of habits did most scale-up CEOs have pre-crisis and how has that changed? So one that I find really interesting, so again, like received wisdom would be an effective leader of a business is going to have, everyone's got really clear roles and responsibilities and you're going to make sure that you know how to kind of lean into each other's strengths. So you know you might have your like functional expertise. So you're in marketing or you're kind of head of uh, product. And then you might also, if you've done some kind of good team development work, you might also know that one person's particularly good at the analytics and one person's particularly good at kind of in innovation and and breaking new ground in terms of their thinking, even outside of their sort of functional responsibilities. In a crisis, you don't start with whose responsibility is what and whose expertise is what. You start with the tasks, the list of tasks, and you divvy up the tasks you almost remove the job titles, the roles and responsibilities as they were. It's everybody around the table equally working out how on earth you're going to get this shit done. What about number three, interactions? This one's interesting because actually it's not about doing something that's the opposite. It's about trying to do something that's actually really hard to keep doing. Again, there's a lot of received wisdom about how even in good times, effective leaders now you know we talk a lot about them being more vulnerable transparency is something that people expect from their leaders and straight talking so what I would mean by straight talking is that honesty that you would get from transparency but you know not afraid to say the difficult things or however hard somebody's worked at a task if it's not going to deliver what you need it to deliver there is a effective way of still having that conversation and making sure that you're prioritizing what the business needs first and foremost you know so it's not about nice or not nice but it's certainly not letting nice get in the way so that's important anyway even when the good times are rolling when we're in the kind of situation we're in now what we've noticed is that there has been rightly there's an awful lot of focus on making sure that well-being you know is so important and that is absolutely to be encouraged but it is tricky when you use you put so much focus there that you stop straight talking And you starting to say, well, maybe we'll just let that one go because I don't want to upset this person. Well, you've got to weigh up all the time, right, as a leader of a team. 
how okay is that? And what's actually going to be the ramifications? Because you're not helping anybody if the business is going to go to the wall, right? So you've, you've got to keep your eye on the prize. And I think that is something that a lot of leaders have been really struggling with. But the ones that have kind of seen the best results have really committed to continuing to be supportive, but challenging. Fascinating. And finally, decision making. I mean, you know, so many companies now are being led by leaders who are just trying to do whatever they can to make the things survive this terrible period. Has our fundamental decision making ability changed at all or should it change? So I think uh, decision making is one of my favorite subjects, right? So I think so many people are so bad at it. And so many people don't actually put the time in to work out what their process is around decision making. So so much confusion, usually just because there's no set expectation about what are the steps we take and who's involved at what stage in order for us to achieve a best informed possible decision. Now throw that If that was your starting point anyway for how you ran a business, very common, I might add, you throw that into the middle of a global pandemic where you're trying to make decisions with very little firm information, it's complete chaos, okay? So the thing that I was going to speak about specifically is scenario planning because scenario planning is like quite a good tool, right, for making effective decisions. And again, it's something that lots of businesses do and lots of individuals do. So even when it comes to sort of personal things, you're constantly going, okay, so if A, if B, and I think famously people say you should have an A plan, a B plan and a Z plan, right? So if plan B goes wrong, you've always got your plan Z, which is your Armageddon plan. And, you know, obviously we're levering a lot of plan Zs right now, (laughs) but I think that the danger and the thing to avoid and what people who are succeeding are doing really well is they're not getting overwhelmed by trying to create scenarios around projections, predictions and guesswork because we don't know. It's changing by the day. There are so many unknowns right now. Every day we get a new piece of information, if it feels like. And actually, I think you can hide in scenario planning and actually stopping you getting on doing the work you need to be doing in your business. So scenario planning normally is quite predictable, quite reliable, and probably you've got like two, maximum three scenarios. Right now, if we were to try and exhaustively plan for every scenario, we'd have like 25 scenario plans. I don't think that's helpful for anyone. I think that's exhausting. I think that's demoralizing. And it's also just inaccurate. So it seems like the best thing to do at this time and the the leaders that we're kind of learning from are saying, have one, maybe two scenario plans. So maybe you go for your plan B and your plan Z. Look into the abyss. Like you can't ignore what complete disaster might look like. And actually confronting that makes it a bit less scary. Not less great, but less scary. But I think once you've done that, don't try and make it detailed. It's not a full-blown bullet point plan of exactly what you'll do and when. It's just a loose idea of what will happen in the worst case scenario and what your best current view is right now. Everything in between, I think it's probably a waste of time to spend time trying to figure out those details right now. So I suppose the advice really here is right now, stick to the facts only scenario plan around facts, not speculation, not projection, not guesswork, and limit yourselves to like two, maximum three, very top line scenario plans. Next up, Tamar Atagechi is the CEO and founder of Papier, one of the UK's most well-known greeting card and stationery companies, which Tamar founded five years ago in 2015. 
Sales of greeting cards at Papier are up a whopping 300%. So I caught up with Tamor to find out what's going on and what the future has in store for the industry. We've been lucky in so far as we've been seeing some re- really strong demand across the board, across all of our products. We've seen our products grow by between 200 and 400%. And in terms of why, there are a number of trends that are working in our favor. I guess the broader trend towards e-commerce is definitely one. And myself included in this, just really underestimated or, or, or didn't appreciate how low penetration still remains on e-com in general. As an active young user of the internet buying day in, day out, we kind of assume everyone just does that, but it's not the case. And retail is still the vast majority of most purchases. So with retail effectively being shut down, people are being forced to shop online. And that means that we've acquired a lot more customers at different demographics that we previously wouldn't have. And that's helped in grow demand. And in particular, if you take the greeting cards and notebooks, just two examples there, you know, about 80-90% of those products are bought in shops, typically. Those 80-90% of people who are buying those in shops have nowhere to really buy them other than online. And they're seeking out and finding direct-to-consumer brands like us to serve that. So that, that for me, I think, is, the, is really one of the core trends behind that. Are there any other trends going on in your particular sector of the world that you think might grow or become more important? You know, in an era where we can't travel, will people send more greeting cards? You know, in an era where people are stressed and at home, will they be writing in their journals more? Yeah, definitely. I think the one structural trend I mentioned already, obviously, is this move to e-com. And that is, as I mentioned, just a structural point. It it impacts more than just us. It's impacting a lot of industries and a lot of verticals. But the other that's more specific to us is, again, an acceleration of a trend that, that we've been talking about for well, ever since we started out four years ago, which is what we describe as this return to analog. What that is specifically is we live in an age where digital communication and digital forms of interaction really dominate our lives, whether that's this podcast now or our meetings every day. All of our interactions have become digital. And that's been an amazing development technologically, and that's not a bad thing, and we're incredibly grateful for that. But what it has meant is that there is a new role for analog, for the physicality of product, and and in particular, the physicality of print and paper. There has been a yearning for that engagement with pen to paper, to take notes, to actually not think so fast, but to slow down and just note down the 10 things you need to do day to day to actually not just send a WhatsApp message to say, hey, how's it going? But actually to actually write a note to say that you're thinking of someone and that you're looking forward to seeing them when this is all over. Those things have become even more important now that A, digital's become even more proliferated as we are you know, in this work from home, digital, Zoom heavy mode. And B, because we're so physically separated from one another. So what we've seen is this real surge towards analog communication and analog products in particular. And that means people are sending cards to one another more. They are, as you say, writing postcards. One of the most popular categories of cards at the moment are what they call love from afar cards. So these are just, you know, people writing notes to say, you know, we're just sending you some love and some thoughts and some hope from a physically distant place. And that's been a really 
amazing trend to witness. And the reason it's so amazing is that's the, the purpose of this business was set up for that purpose in itself, which was to inspire people to create these real and meaningful connections. It's been this crisis that has brought that purpose front and center and really proven the value that we believe as a brand we bring to communities. Have you had any uh, roadblocks, challenges, kind of hiccups in your supply chain, manufacturing, distribution? I mean, are paper mills still functional and, you know, getting things to you on time, for instance? Again, it's amazing because you never stress test your supply chains for this. I mean, no one does. You'd kind of be mad to constantly stress test for pandemics. But I've learned a lot about the supply chain that we work on. And one of the things that we've also learned is it's remarkably catastrophe proof. And the reason it's so catastrophe proof is that paper and print in particular are very quickly deemed essential emergency manufacturing modes across all societies around the world. So within weeks, we had all of our suppliers and our print partners around the world tell us we're okay because we've been deemed essential. And the reason is, is that, you know, all these letters that come through our letterbox to tell us that whether it's stay at home or stay alert or whatever it is, requires the good old-fashioned analog form of print and paper. And that's because print and paper doesn't discriminate between young, poor, wealthy or old. If you are at home, you don't own a laptop, you can still read a note that says stay at home. So one thing that was remarkable is that actually we benefited from the sense that we're part of that industry, we're part of print and paper. So we were not impacted from a supply chain perspective as much as other sectors. We did have one hiccup. We do have a print partner in California and California was one of the earliest, quickest stay at home orders and most draconian stay at home orders, which included manufacturing and, and obviously Elon Musk quite famously at the moment is, is, is really battling that. But that was our one print operation that actually did get shut down as a result of it. What about finally the future for your company? Have you changed your overall strategy based on this? Is this just a temporary kind of like slight kind of period you're going to go through that eventually you'll get to the same place you always wanted to get to? I think there are things that we will do differently as a result of this permanently. So there, there will be changes in, in our approach. I think one part of that will be what I referenced earlier, this resilience and this recession proof and this catastrophe proof. proof. So I think a lot of people, myself included, believe that this might be sadly the first of many tremors or kind of challenges that society face. Having done a lot of research, as I'm sure most people have around pandemics in general, Again, the writing was on the wall. We've had SARS, we've had Berg, we've had a lot of little false alarms that were leading to this. What that's made us realize is that there is a real value in a diversified range of portfolio of products that can weather different storms. And if I give you an example there, across our range of products, we have wedding products as well. And wedding has been one of the core parts of the business. And we serve Roughly now, about 10% of UK weddings will use Papier products as part of it. Now, obviously, that part of our business has gone to a very small fraction of what it was. And obviously, that part of our business is not resilient or, or able to combat this type of epidemic or pandemic in the future. But other parts of our business have responded in the inverse way. So I, as I mentioned, cards and notebooks. And what that's really taught me as an entrepreneur is you really do have to think about your portfolio, your kind of resilience, your ability to weather different storms and having a diversified 
product range is really beneficial in that perspective. So what that's probably meant is we will, going forward strategically, keep one eye on have, making sure that that, stra- that that diversification is there. But in terms of does it change the core purpose of the business? No. I think what's great is that this has proven and validated that purpose of the business. And actually, that acceleration point, again, and accelerating those existing trends, it's just proven that that trend is, was there and it's there. And that's the thing we should make sure we hold on to. I think at the point at which you change your purpose is really the point at which you are not really changing strategy or changing your business entirely, which is no bad thing in itself. For us, that's not kind of our approach at the moment. And that's it for today. Make sure to sign up to Courier's email newsletter, Courier Weekly, for more stories of adapting, growing, and reopening. That's at couriermedia.co slash sign up. If you like this episode, why not subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts? I'm Daniel Giacopelli. Courier Daily is back again tomorrow. We'll see you then.